0: This is episode 206 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, The Wild World of Music Promotion with Elliot Kendall. Hello everybody. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the mostly self-explanatory show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden. This show is a reboot of Dear Discreet Guide, which ended with 202 episodes at the end of year 2020. So thank you for joining us in the new show. I'm excited to see where this new adventure will take us. I am so pleased to welcome uh, some very special guests today with me. So Bill Aho is back, my partner in crime. And also, I'd like to welcome Elliot Kendall, who is here with us today to talk about music promotion. And Elliot's company is film and music PR and promotion. So he does, surprisingly enough, film and music promotion and PR. So welcome, Elliot and Bill.
1: Thank you. Thank you. So great to be here. Thanks, Jennifer.
0: So, Elliot, you promised me that you'd be able to give us a quick bio. I know you've got many years in music promotion. So, yeah, can you can you fill us in a little bit?
1: Thank you. And I'll try to make it not dull, um, but I think it will help to clarify what I do for work in present day. Uh, but I'm from Berkeley, California. So Northern California, the San Francisco Bay Area scene uh, was very much my upbringing, late 70s, early 80s. We had wonderful clubs. We had the old Waldorf in San Francisco. We had the Keystone Berkeley in Keystone, in uh, Berkeley that is, Keystone Palo Alto, the Stone in San Francisco. I'm a musician at heart, but I'm a reinvented musician. And so what I mean by that is, you know, growing up I always wanted to write music, be in a band, very much attending all the uh, local shows in the area. So I grew up around the Berserkly Records scene. So that mm. would include Greg Kinn, Earthquake, the Reubenews, Jonathan Richmond, mm. all of whom played softball up the street from my parents' house, <laughs> less than a thousand feet away. <laughs> so, you know, on any given uh, day, you'd find these Berserkly Records guys up there. And the Berserkly office was in a house that was around, we, it was a big block, but I was close to the Rose Gardens in Courtney's Park. But uh, the Berserkly Records office was in a home on Spruce. So I would assume that they would have band meetings and, you know, everything else, business there. And then they'd go and play softball. We also had wonderful record stores. And I won't go down a a huge rabbit hole here, but, uh, you know, Tower Records, Rather Ripped Records, Discount Records, uh, Universal Records, uh, Leopold, where you could actually rent LPs, take them home, tape them on cassette and return them for a nominal fee. It was just a wonderful environment to grow up in. And I loved the Bay Area. I always knew I wanted to leave the Bay Area, but it was remarkable to grow up there and to sort of formulate my thoughts on you know, music and pop culture and things of that nature. So I took guitar lessons from Joe Satriani, who's a well-known and, and very uh, best-selling uh, instrumental guitarist, electric guitarist, um, still recording and, and very active. And I enjoyed seeing his early band. He had an early band called The Squares. Mm. Um, so I would go to a lot of shows and I just, you know, adored the live scene. We had the Concord Pavilion. Uh, we had the Greek Theater. The, we had the Cow Palace, all number of great venues. Early 80s, some friends of mine who had moved to Los Angeles started getting, started getting nibbles on record deals. So uh, a couple of my friends had uh, had some real legitimate interests. And I always sort of thought, well, you know, I really want to go to Los Angeles. I went to SF State for about six months and it was wonderful. Uh, But I just didn't feel the campus life and I wasn't adapting to the dorm life. It wasn't like it was a fraternity, but I just didn't for whatever reason, it didn't speak to me. It was a beautiful campus. I enjoyed a couple of courses, one of whom was taught by. Joel Selvin, the San Francisco Chronicles premier music and pop reviewer, Um, and more on Joel later. But that was interesting because he had almost like a lecture hall. He would come in and play music and then have you analyze it and then later quiz you on it, which was fascinating. And this is the guy really calling all the shots for the major publication of the Bay Area. So, you know, it was a great crash course and sort of seeing like, well, this is interesting. He's an adjunct professor, but he's also an author and he's also writing his column at least once or twice a week in the Chronicle. I mean, to really crank it back in those days, they had the date book, which is the pink section, they would call it the San Francisco Chronicles uh, entertainment section. So fast forward to me moving to Los Angeles. Uh, but before I did that, I became a waiter because I had bands, they broke up, they reformed. Uh, but then I, kind of understood that the job of a musician is going to be you're going to starve Mm -hmm. for a while at least right so I just thought well let's uh you know I had a friend whose mom uh ran a wonderful restaurant called the Buttercup Bakery on College and Alcatraz and here's where that kind of crash course comes in very handy later and I would almost recommend this to young people as well in being a waiter you have to learn how to deal with every kind of personality under the sun And I know this is kind of a round robin way of getting to the music business, but there's so many different personalities, especially in the breakfast rush. You know, people are trying to get to work. Uh, You're in charge of knowing your menu, uh, knowing your customers needs, getting the check in a timely order and getting them out the door so they can go to work and then hopefully being charming or somewhat entertaining in the middle period. So, I was a waiter at the Buttercup for a good year and a half, two years, saved a lot of money by living at home with my parents, um, but I saved them money by not going to college. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. uh, but short story longer, uh, I started making one of my many trips down Highway 5 to Los Angeles. A friend of mine knew a club booker that was actually going to sub or willing to sublet her apartment because she was going to be cat sitting and house sitting for Tony K, who is the keyboard player for Yes. Oh. So I know it's a strange reference, but it's true. And, but she was a delightful woman named Michelle Meyer, but she subletted me in her little studio apartment while I got my feet up on the ground. I did, I eventually got a waiter job in Los Angeles and then moved my musical gear all down to LA. I got a waiter job at a place called Hamptons on Highland. Now, the thing that uh, is helpful to know about Hamptons on Highland is it's right in the middle of all the major studios Mm. right next to all the major record labels you had emi you had a m you had rca you had the Capitol tower they were all there and this restaurant was very affordable because it was burgers salad bar the occasional fish gazpacho soup etc kind of similar to the buttercup that it was basics but you know it was like a a groovy sort of garden hamburger place you would actually go up and prepare your own salads Which is a funny thing, but the great basis of all this wacky waiter work and me getting to Los Angeles is once again you're thrown in the middle of waiting on all sorts of types of customers and different people. And during this process, as I you know got settled into Los Angeles, and uh, you know the waiting gigs maybe barely paid the rent, but I had some money saved. I'm always making demos, always doing the musicians thing, putting the bands together, playing local clubs like the Coconut Teaser, the Roxy, the Whiskey, et cetera. But in the back of my mind, when I would drop off a demo tape to the record companies, uh, there'd be a receptionist and there'd be the gatekeepers. And, you know, it's no different than today, although the internet is your gatekeeper, right? Mm. And we can get a little deeper on that. But I would drop off the tape and there was a voice inside me saying, well, you know, I can always do that gig. (laughs) And I want to be respectful about that. But I just sort of thought, You know, the record companies were filters and of course they're getting bombarded, you know, just like any, just like the New York times would be bombarded by the likes of me now, you know, any publicist or independent or radio station. So we'll get into sort of the hybrid territory later, but I just sort of looked at the record company gigas. You know, I could always kind of pull that off if I really had to, you know, things get tough, right? Mm -hmm. So years go on. And I've got some nice nibbles. And I had a song in a uh, cartoon soundtrack called "Star Street," that was over in Europe. Uh, it was literally because of my waiter job, because I always had the demo tape in the apron pocket, but I wasn't <laughs> <laughs> right. But I wasn't going <laughs> to shove it on everybody. And I waited tables on, and I'll start name dropping now: uh, Frank Zappa, uh, Paul Stanley from Kiss. The entire uh, Too Close for Comfort cast would come in and sit at table 40. <laughs> you know, uh, Jim J. Bullock from that show was a regular at the restaurant. Uh, Kenny Loggins, John Bauman, who's known as Bowser and Sha Na Na. Oh, uh, Paul LaMatte from American Graffiti. Uh, so anyway, you would get any number of celebrities plus record executives. You know, you had to know how to behave.
0: Yeah. I do have to indulge myself just to say, so you and I overlapped in Berkeley. I had no idea that you had that time up there. (laughs) Yeah, so I was up there after I graduated college. I went out to Berkeley. So I I was there in the early 80s. I was up there. Yeah, so uh, a lot of the places that you name are places I went also, especially to the Greek theater for the Greek Oh, love it. And where
1: did you live? What was your neighborhood?
0: And I lived on Dwight Way. Oh, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I, I'm sorry. I have to throw that in there. Well, and the then best
1: ex- bookstores. I mean, you had Shakespeare. You had Moe's. Yeah. You had, you yeah. know, Cody's, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Um, that's that's interesting. I didn't realize that you had that connection. And then, of course, Tower Records, I have to also toss in here that I was watching uh, All Things Must Pass. So this is, I should explain here. So it's a documentary about Tower Records that, Elliot, you were involved with somehow. I'm not sure exactly how. Tell tell us about that.
1: So flash forward to, um, I had a 12-year career at Universal. Right. Um, That was not without building blocks. Late 90s, I was still a waiter, but I was starting to get a and jobs for a small Japanese record label. I was starting to do liner notes for companies like Varese Sarabond, which was known as a soundtrack label, but they started putting out really fun things like Jan and Dean, The mm. Free Design. Uh, I convinced them to do a collection on the Hilos, which is one of my favorite vocal groups of all time. And I sort of morphed into doing this freelance for record labels thing, where I just would you know, come in, champion an artist, offer to write the liner notes, and get a package deal of whatever the dough was. That snowballed after a while. I worked for Delphi Records, which was Bob Keen's label originally back in the late 50s, early 60s. In the 90s, Delphi had this remarkable surge because they had a song placed in Pulp Fiction, Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. So they had money, not a ton of money, but enough of money to start hiring. And they hired me as a radio slash a man. Uh-huh. And I learned my bones at Delphi Records for a couple of years, took uh-huh. a break, helped out on a uh, TV biopic called The Beach Boys, and American Family. It ran in 1999, 2000. It was like ABC Columbia Tri-Stars, a two-nighter on ABC. And that was glorious experience. And... As I was getting that job, my Delphi job ran out. So I was working on this biopic for television, which is incredibly exciting. Some days they'd bring catering would be lobster. And that might be once a week where it'd be phenomenal catering. And then the rest of the week would be really nice catering. But it was a great job. And I got tapped by Alan Boyd, who does all the Beach Boys archives work. And a gentleman by the name of Gary Griffin, who's been associated with Full House and Brian Wilson, and et cetera, et cetera. So I had this wonderful job, it paid fabulous, and at one point they kept me on to continue consulting to be able to say, "Well, that tape recorder's too new; you wouldn't want that in this shot at the studio." Mm. And you know, actually, they would have worn this, not that—that so that sort of thing. And that ended. And I had probably a good six to nine months where I was working uh very small jobs and uh f- a, an acquaintance of mine said hey they're looking to hire someone for catalog radio at universal uh-huh. and what catalog is is and i don't with all due respect to frontline but it's the fun stuff it's the good stuff it's uh at the time catalog could be considered uh chuck berry bill haley doo uh of course the beach boys of course the beatles so, you know, the catalog refers to the uh, rights and the master recordings that the label pretty much owns and controls, right? So, so there's this job for a radio catalog person, which was kind of perfect for me because I'd always specialized in catalog as liner notes and here this job came up and uh, without getting too dramatic, I got the gig. And let's be honest, it was the job of a lifetime for a, mm. uh, you know, semi sort of okay musician You know, by that point, I had scored one movie for Showtime called *The Effects of Magic*, so I felt like I yeah, I saw that. Oh, thank you. So, Uh you know, I felt like I had utilized my gifts in that direction, and I'd sort of made it stick. But at the same time, let's be an adult. Not that that's a requirement, but it sort of feels (laughs) like that. You know what I mean? I'm just, and I guess that also goes back to the reinvention. So, Uh here's what happened, and we can go back to Universal because that's a that's a Technicolor biopic in itself. After Universal ended, and when it ended, and I'm going to just make this brief, Universal was buying Capital. That's a big move in any record company's life. Capital was a staunch competitor to Universal for years. So they were very separate. Universal had the clout, had the money. They were buying Capital. So in my mind, and I had worked Kiss, John Mellencamp, Bob Marley catalog, Jimi Hendrix catalog uh def leopard the who uh ringo star elton john for 12 years at universal but in my mind i wanted to be around for that capital takeover because the beatles and the beach boys i see gotcha that didn't happen oh <laughs> and, and later through my former boss through talk whatever it sounded like when capital uh, was bought by universal the beatles wanted their team the team they knew, the PR people, the radio people, that, that bunch of people that were over capital, they wanted that firmly locked in place uh-huh. so that there was no chance that I could make it. Also, the gentleman who was at capital working in that capacity in a similar role to mine was cheaper. So it was kind of just a chess move. It was like a no brainer. Huh. Right. So, you know, I'm out. It's a downsizing, call it what it is. You know, at some point, you also realize that there's an expiration date on these adventures. You know, as much as you want them to go on forever, there just is. Music moves forward. Culture moves forward. Your references may not be the 20-year-old's references. And I'll be gentle about that. But it is what it is. And there I am in the position of reinvention. So Tower Records and All Things Must Pass and Colin Hanks. So what happened was, you know, after I was uh, downsized, you know, you're figuring out Basically, it's like opening up a lemonade stand every five minutes. That's how I describe it. And it's shocking because, of course, when you're at the corporation, you're used to medical, dental benefits, 401k, all these glorious, lovely things. Right. And then all of a sudden you don't have it at all. You're basically, once again, like, uh, you know, a lemonade stand and you're freelance and they say hang your shingle. And it's not an exaggeration. You know, it's shocking and many of the contacts that you knew aren't going to return your emails or calls because you don't have that big glorious brand behind you. Mm. You know, I'm sure there's uh, it's it's basically Jerry Maguire. If you've ever seen Jerry Maguire. Oh yeah. <laughs> so so it's, it's Jerry Maguire and I want to be honest about it. Now, back to the fun stuff. So I'm reading in the trade papers that all Things Must Pass, the Tower Records documentary has uh, been picked up for distribution by a company called Gravitas Ventures, right? Yeah, I saw that. Mm-hmm. Weird name. Mm-hmm. Interesting name. And A, I'm thinking, gosh, I'm so glad that they embraced that subject, which is close to obviously our mutual hearts, right? It's Tower. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, at one point you can shake your finger at Tower and go, well, their prices were too high, but you know, they're also part of our youth. Yes. So, and, and I think the film brilliantly covers all that. So, but I was passionate and I've just always been. I want to work with clients that I can sell. Not only can I sell, but I care about so that there's a heart beating in the back. There's a real human being, you know, there's a ghost in the machine, however you want to describe it. But I want to be, and there's a tremendous vicarious uh, thing about what I do with publicity and PR um, and promotion. So, I read that Gravitas had picked this up and I did my homework on Gravitas. And I'm, as you might've noticed, I'm always on LinkedIn. When I was downsized from Universal, I told myself, I'm just gonna force myself to be a social media guy. Now that doesn't mean that I'm gonna be an influencer, right? but I've just gotta be on those platforms. So I'm on the four basic food groups that I feel that work for me in promotion and PR is uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. So, and of course there's many others. Um, but, uh, but those four, I feel like are sort of my building blocks. So I, I educated myself as much as you need to, to be at least somewhat adept or familiar with those. And then, uh, I thought, well, I'll contact Gravitas, you know, cold call, you know, and, good for uh, you.
0: good for well, you.
1: Well, thank you. But it's all cold calls, right. Especially when it's passion projects, you know, so There's a couple that uh, that fell into my lap, you know, working with John Fogarty in more recent years came about because the VP of marketing executive there, um, the VP of marketing at BMG and I worked together at Universal. So there was that nice, cozy um, connection. He also uh, has hired me for uh, Iron Maiden and for uh, Keith Richards box sets and things of that nature BMG. So I just did my homework and found an email on a website and just sent a cold, cold email and just said, hey, I'd like to do A, B, C, D, and E for you. Uh, my history is this. I did such and such and such and such for uh, Universal. And I'd like to, uh, frankly, I'd like to uh, work on your, you know, your film. And I can integrate with publicity. I work well with others. I play nicely in the sandbox. If what I do is second banana, then I'll be Avis every time to somebody else's hurts, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. You know, I have no problem being Burt Ward to somebody else's Adam West. And I think it's helped because it'll get my foot in the door. So time goes by too much for me in my mind, but three or so weeks go by and then I get a nice email back and it's like, Hey, we haven't forgotten about you. We want to have you come in for a meeting. I mean, this is like, but you know, this is honestly the process of every reinventing musician ever. You're dying to get a letter back from that demo tape saying come on in uh-huh. and let's talk or when's the show you know what what a guys would do is they would say oh well you know send me the new stuff send me your new demos and then you get the demos in. they go well let me see the show so then it'd be this cycle this constant cycle yeah. that'd be really exhausting you know but in this case you know here it is and you just never know where these things are going to lead right and i think well it's a it's a studio and, and if you look up gravitas you know they've released some really marvelous documentaries uh, one of which, well, after the Tower film, it led to this wonderful uh, Leonard Nimoy documentary.
0: Oh, they did that. Oh, interesting.
1: So, yeah. And 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 what was nice was they loved my work on, on the Tower doc. I got to uh, take Colin Hanks out for a media day. Uh, we went to point, 100.3 The Sound for the morning show there, which was remarkable. And, you know, he had a high maintenance publicist that was really tough and tight and territorial, you know, and didn't necessarily want me getting any glory. But Colin understood my firepower. And later, you know, part of my uh, proposal was, I'm like, let me do Street Team for you. I'll do these, uh, you know, these postcards for a nominal fee, because I have a printer here in Culver City, and I crank out these postcards for Street Team. And you'll find these at every record show, every Amoeba Records location, Rasputin Records, you know, coffee shops, things of that nature. So, they really liked my array of services because I was sort of filling in what maybe <laughs> <laughs> Bill Scott, Hollywood Eden, and the association. Thank you. So, so I, I filled a need, you know, they didn't, and, and I said, look, I also think I can get rock stars to come in on Tower Records. And this was in a meeting, and it was literally one of those meetings where it's a cold pitch. And you know, you go in, you're meeting, you're waiting in the waiting room, you go to the conference room, and there's five strangers. And it's like, okay, dazzle me. And I did. I brought in all my tools and I said, I think we can get an article over here. I'd also like to do a partnership here with this, that and the other. And I can do Street Team. And I think I can get quotes from you for rock from rock stars. And I can get Colin Hanks a ton of radio interviews because at that time, radio was my specialty. So Colin Hanks is the director of All Things Must Pass and, uh, and many other films and an actor himself. But of course, he's the son of Tom Hanks. Um, which no one will probably ever let him forget for the rest of his life. (laughs) But to Colin's credit, you know, he got the funding of this film on his own, basically, you know, I mean, yes, there's the name in the back and yes, there's, you know, I'm sure Bruce Springsteen came to the table because, you know, there was a Tom thing there, but look, he still did it the hard way, the old fashioned way, which made me really respect him. And he's a Sacramento kid. So part of his childhood was growing up in Sacramento, which is where the main branch of Tower was. So that's why the subject was so near and dear to his heart. He knew friends who worked there. He obviously shopped there. You know, Sacramento is that kind of town. And the Tower that existed in Sac was glorious. I mean, it was part of an old theater. Anyway, it goes on and on. But for the most part, they kept me away from Colin until all of a sudden I started pulling rock stars, giving these great quotes about Tower Records. So I got Brian Wilson, I got Joe Elliott from Def Leppard. um, I got Rick Springfield, you know, so I got all these different rock stars to say sentimental things about Tower Records. So that's really essentially the gig, but it was really fun to work. And the fact that it was a rock documentary kind of got me started on my feet. Gravitas Ventures liked what I was doing and uh, helped with, uh, you know, got me the job for for The Love of Spock, which is the documentary on Adam Nimoy. So that was a blast to work too. I did very much the same role, hooked up lots of interviews uh, for Adam Nimoy, the director, you know, Leonard Nimoy being his father. And, uh, you know, it was another great uh, documentary experience.
0: Thank you for taking the time to take us through that, because, yeah, it's just fascinating. And it's really interesting to think about your experience in music promotion at the same time that music promotion itself was evolving you know it's sort of like your own history is a history of music promotion but yeah just in broad strokes can you tell us like what has been the evolution
1: of music promotion so i think at its most basic and i come from a radio background so i'm comfortable talking about you know how i felt about radio naturally Uh, Growing up in the Bay Area, you had KYA, you had KSAN, um, you had, uh, you know, these wonderful stations, you know, KPFA, public radio, you know, I, I thought radio was magical and it was theater of the mind across the board, commercial rock, country, public radio, talk radio. This is engaging. They're conversations that hopefully we want to be part of, or at least eavesdrop in, right? flash forward to today where it's really the information overload generation. Mm. We have so many choices and it's glorious on many counts. It's absolutely wonderful that you can go out and seek a subject and listen to, you know, 30 different Paul McCartney interviews that have all been done in one year.
0: (laughs) Right. Right, Exactly.
1: So imagine that. So when we grew up, right, the collective we uh, assuming we're all more or less baby boomers, you know, you could never sort of go, oh, gosh, I'd love to find all the Elvis Presley interviews in one place and binge listen to them. You know, now you kind of can, yeah. you know, you can you can if you want to really go deep, uh, you can, which is wonderful. I'm going to make a broad statement here in that, you know, I'll say that the evolution of things like streaming and downloads, I get it. I'm very happy that these tech companies are making a bundle. I'm happy for them, but I'm a little disgusted on the musician side. And I think it only allows the big mean record companies to play more backroom games and make these backroom deals with the streaming companies so that, you know, once again, they're at an advantage. Flashback to the 50s when Little Richard would sign a contract just to get a Cadillac. Little did he know he's giving away a multi-million dollar publishing deal. Oh,
0: that's re- that's such an interesting point for you to make. That's really fascinating. Yeah, you know, this is what's been in the back of my mind from the Paola days, right? Because I, yeah, I like to listen to country music. And you know, it's just a nightmare to try and be a country music fan right now. Boy, did you open up a? Yeah, because the country did you stations, open up
1: a can of worms? there? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah
0: so, yeah. so, why am I only hearing the same twenty songs on my country music station?
1: Perfect. So, luckily, when I was, you know, also oh, oh, I should
0: say, mostly
1: bad songs. <laughs> I'm going to go there too. So there's a there's a sausage factory in Nashville and a mindset in that genre Mm. that that says this is a hook and this is the clever chorus and this is how long you want to tell the chorus and this is you know things are done by formula unfortunately Mm. now outside of that you've got uh, Americana which is much more wonderful and open and look I'm not trying to paint a big glossy glorious picture but I will say this luckily I rarely ever, in fact, I can honestly say, and not that I'm the biggest guy of scruples, I think I am, but you also have to sort of watch what's going on in the landscape. I'm so grateful that I never had to dip my toes in payola. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of my career, Elliot Spitzer came in and said, these guys are bad and this is what's going on. So whenever that year was, two thirds through my career, all of a sudden, in addition to trying to get airplay for a new song by Ringo Starr, or an unreleased catalog track by Bob Marley, all of a sudden my job became paperwork and I had to get every radio station. Now, I didn't just specialize in one format. I specialized in all of them. So I had to, anytime I had a promotion or a giveaway, you know, giveaways are how you create awareness, right? If you give away five copies of an album, uh, they mention it on the air and somebody hears about it and goes, oh, I didn't know there's a new Bob Marley box set out whatever the fill in is. Right. So when Elliot Spitzer did his little dance, all of a sudden my job and all of my, uh, fellow promotion people's jobs became paperwork. We were just, it was administrative. And all of a sudden we had to have checks and balances and checks and balances. Some people are doing it. Some people aren't, you know, I had managers. I'll never forget. I had a, a, manager screaming at me to send the giveaways for such and such band, and this is a huge multi-selling platinum band, and this is the way a lot of managers roll. If they're yellers, they're going to have staff members that are yellers. Mm. So this guy was screaming at me going, why aren't you sending those box sets to those 124 stations? Well, because those stations haven't sent their paperwork in. And I work for my boss. Who that's So that's in oh, a nutshell. Nightmare. That's, wow. Yeah. So I just, and look, I was happy to do it. I was happy to shoulder all that grief because I told myself once I walked through those doors that they basically have my time and I'm going to give them 200% and whatever crazy James Bond thrill ride I go through in those eight hours, (laughs) I'm going to walk out of there and go, I just worked for the biggest record company in the world and I'm still here. And I took that philosophy and attitude for 12 years. So you know, I've been screamed at by the best. So if you can learn a little, if you can learn a little Teflon, it's helpful. It kind of goes back to that waiter thing. You know, Mm -hmm. I have unfortunately spilled hot soup on people and I'm not proud about it. Um, I slipped on a butter pat with an eggs Benedict in the middle of a restaurant and it did a double flip and hit the floor. But I live, I live to tell, you know, Mm -hmm. I I, I wanted to crawl in a, in a cave uh, when it happened. So I believe that streaming has been, has made things convenient, but do I think it's fair for the artist, you know, as a musician that was in the trenches for a gazillion years? And yes, you could say, Oh, I'm a failed reinvented musician that then went and worked for the suits at the record company. Well, yeah, I did that too. But is it fair for the artist? That's basically where my heart is, is I feel like if you're a, a, you know, a young woman or a young man, that's going to sit in a room and create some art. Do you deserve to be paid for it? Yeah, you do. And I'm sorry, legislation, it's not cool. So there's bigger picture government stuff. You know, I think Howard Bloom, I couldn't believe his recall on the PMRC stuff. (laughs) I wish I was a little more clear on what I'm saying, but I think that's really the basics. I think the artists are more screwed than ever. It's harder than ever to make it. And us as PR and promotion people, We have to be open to all kinds of things to cut through the clutter. There's so much clutter out there. And if we know, we as PR and promotion people, if we know a few lanes and we know that that book is so close to my heart, Hollywood Eden by Joel Selvin, there's Jan and Dean, there's Beach Boys, there's uh, Nancy Sinatra, all this exciting West Coast rock and roll, late 50s, early 60s, mid 60s, going to late 60s. Do I know who to pitch that to? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I know podcast people. I know press people. uh, I sure know radio people. And I'll do it on on retainer for whatever it was. I worked life a project on that one. So it wasn't like I was watching the clock. Mm -hmm. Um,
2: But I think that's the answer. So... That's kind of where things are. That now, I guess, is reached a point where where something has to change and be different. Do you have any hope, any hopefulness that there's going to be a big change in the future, or some kind of change in the future that's going to make that I don't know a better a better fit for most people? Because it seems to me as people are trying to get exposure to something, I mean, especially if they don't have an A and R guy or something to help them out, it's really hard for a new artist to find some way to put themselves out there. And like radio is kind of a gone thing. I mean used to be you could get radio to play things or maybe XM or something, but even that's pretty formula these days. I mean, it's the same hour or two hour track that recycles over and over again. I don't know. How do do the regular Joes out there that even have a movie or a song or whatever trying to get out there, how do they get that exposure? Perfectly
1: stated. I think, no, it's not going to change. Unfortunately, tech is here to stay. Tech is definitely big brother. I've got two Amazon Echoes. They listen to everything we say. They turn around and market to us, which might not be that bad a thing, but they're following what you like. They're following your clicks on Facebook. They're checking you out and figuring out your personality so that when you buy an Instagram boost, this record show that's happening tomorrow night knows that I'm a record collector. So all of a sudden it appears in my feed and I'm not unhappy about it, but I'm just aware that these devices are checking you out. It's not spying. I'm sure in the fine print when we bought these things, there's something that says something about it, but they are. I mean, I had a uh, hydraulic desk at one of my jobs and it was a radio consulting gig, which was fascinating. It was about uh, imaging, which is what they how they put all those amazing sounds together. But they had a hydraulic desk and I'd mentioned it, I think, in a phone conversation And all of a sudden in my feed, I start seeing ads for hydraulic desks. Yeah. But back to the artist side. So I just think as I was armed with a guitar and songs in Berkeley, California, I also, you know, learned a skill, you know, I learned how to be a waiter. So unfortunately, I think it's double, triple the responsibility factor on the artist. Now you're just going to have to find out a way to make money. And if you really love this, take the crumbs they're going to throw you.
2: It's sad. (laughs)
1: That's brutal, but I think it's honest, you know, and they really are crumbs now. So here here I am sort of looking on top of this little sand hill, right? Because I've got real record company experience. I've worked under brilliant people. You know, of course, when it ends, you know, it's like, woe is me. But I mean, I worked under probably the top female publicity executive in the business, Sujata Murthy who's now head of worldwide global PR for Universal. So, you know, you can take two paths. You can look at that and go, wow, I worked alongside of her. And I was working Ringo and I was working Smokey Robinson. I was working the Motown catalog. And that was remarkable. You know, or you can go, well, I didn't play the game right. Or I didn't know the right people. I mean, unfortunately, the champions at the corporation start leaving because they get downsized. So I had mentors, you know, Grammy winning uh, AR people that I had written liner notes for that helped me get the job back in the day. He's let go, you know, with a glorious lunch. Then uh, the head of sales that hired me when I first got there, wonderful, wonderful man uh, who believed in me the whole way along and defended me, he got blown out, went and worked for Rhino. So all of a sudden, your champions start disappearing. And then the new kids come in, and I'm being funny about new kids, but you get maybe a tougher sales guy that thinks radio doesn't sell records, all of a sudden, you're not valued anymore. And that literally happened. Like, for my first seven years, it's like, we have a radio guy working catalog. So all these catalog releases, oh my God, and they brought me to every meeting, and I hit the ground running, and really kept moving, and kept up speed. And then toward the end of my career at Universal, they would say, radio doesn't sell records and all of a sudden you're not valued you know
2: what sells records now then
1: the greatest question ever (laughs) (laughs) i remember once uh we were having a meeting they they named our conference rooms after musicians so there was the uh bob marley conference room the abba conference room uh the john coltrane conference room and patsy klein and patsy klein was the most friendly but we're in patsy (laughs) klein (laughs)
2: <laughs> and we had like,
1: we we're in the Patsy Klein conference room and it was like a bagel Friday. You know, they'd have bagels to get you. you know, so they. I guess the tradition is if you have a little bit of catering, people won't be slackers on a Friday. They'll actually show up at nine to get a bagel. And I was always there at 830 anyway. You know, I I had a work ethic. But I remember the finance guy came in and just looked me in the face. And he was kind of an emotionless guy. I mean, he was a nice enough guy. I don't think he had anything against me personally, but he said, radio doesn't sell records and looked me straight in the face in front of the other big CFO there too. And I said, Well, there goes my job security. How would you answer that? And that was how I answered. I go, Well, there goes my job security. I tried to laugh it off, but it was like I was so stunned. You know, I mean, at least save behind my back and then get rid of me, you know, but I still stuck around for a while. But, you know, you'd find once again, if you can learn how to be Teflon, you could probably do OK.
0: I just have to hop in here and say, you know. As a fan of music, lifelong fan of music, big consumer, right? I spent a lot of money on music, many songs from that country station that plays the same 20 songs over and over because I don't really like those songs. But there's an alternative radio station up in Mammoth Lakes, up in the High Sierra. I buy so much music based on that radio station. It's not even funny because they- I'm delighted to hear that. There's so many songs that they play. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of them are new songs, right? But a lot of them are old songs, too. I mean, for catalog type songs, right? Yep. But things that I just have never run across before, or even artists I've never run across. But I could just start naming all the Andrew Bird. I now own so much Andrew Bird music. And I only heard of him because of that alternative radio station. Jennifer, what are the call letters? Uh, let's see. So it's, um, Sierra wave. I'm going to help myself out here in post-production. It's KSR 92.5. Yeah. They're up in, uh, the Eastern Sierra, you know, and my guess is they're probably taking a feed from somebody. That would be my guess that, that mm-hmm. their programming is actually done by somebody else. Cause it, mm-hmm. it, it kind of feels that way, but it's excellent. It's great. Mm-hmm. I love it
1: like acoustic cafe that sort of thing those kinds of programs um
0: it's it's alternative rock so mm-hmm. uh, you know so it's not just acoustic stuff but that's mm-hmm. where i learned about lv for example mm-hmm. who i just think are great mm-hmm. um but i would say andrew bird you know is just i've just become a huge fan and it's all because of that radio station so yeah it depends on the radio i guess i would say
1: well that that leads me to uh getting started okay as like a new artist or an independent artist, which is something I don't necessarily specialize in. If you would ask me what my bread and butter is, I would say music documentaries and and, uh, and, and music books now. I've done two, which Bill kindly showed before, but I did Along Comes the Association, which was the autobiography of one of the members of the association, Russ Juguere, and that came about in a very organic fashion. And then uh, Joel Selvin's Hollywood Eden came later. So I'd worked on two books so far, but of course they've been music books. So I would look at those books and say, I know where to go for people who are going to appreciate the subject matter and love to get a copy, even if it's just a PDF, right? Because we're talking about that too. the distribution world now is so digital. It's like, if you don't download stuff, or, you know, if you don't have a link, um, you're not going to be able to really prepare for an interview, do your homework, etc. You know, you send a press release. So it is convenient with all those things, you know what I mean, at least with the digital age. But for an an emerging artist, or even, you know, I'm working with clients, singer-songwriter Kyle Vincent, who's had record deals, major record deals. He was with Hollywood Records. He was with MCA. He was with Polygram. He now has an interesting distribution deal through Universal, but people still need to be introduced to him. Do you know what I mean? In other words, artists who may have some track record may also be sort of starting from scratch every time. I once had a meeting at Bill Graham Presents, and it was a gentleman by the name of Jerry Pompili. And Jerry told my band at the time, look, Eddie Money is the same way. They just signed up Eddie Money. We thought he's got it made. Jerry Pompili at Bill Graham Presents told us, you're always starting from scratch. Mm -hmm. You're always rebuilding it. You're always just learning how to write a new song. And it was a great analogy. He says some of our artists are going back to pumping gas and doing whatever they have to do for a straight job just to keep it going. So it was an interesting, motivating kind of rah-rah thing. And it wasn't a long meeting. But it was just sort of like, hey, this is the reality. Like it, you don't have it made once you put out your first single. You're always going to be starting from scratch and reinventing whatever it is.
2: That kind of sounds like that side of things. But as a, someone who's growing, when I was growing up, when you found out about music, new music, radio was one big part of it because it was more free form. They could play things that you wouldn't expect. Your friends would have parties and they would put music on the radio or in the record on the stereo and you would and they would play something they thought you all wanted to hear something new or, or something and or even something old that you hadn't heard and you would discover things that you hadn't discovered. These days with digital, it's so much a solo personal thing. I mean people yes. walking around with headphones on. So yes. and, and radio doesn't have the same kind of pull for new music. I mean XM and stuff, you can find things there, but it's only like a what they want you to hear. Not a wide like college radio would be I don't know if college radio still is doing the wide range of sure. things. But they but, are yeah. And, but, but it's like, um, how do people, how do regular people find new music to listen to that they like? If, if there's not a lot of places, I mean, for me, it was just, it would just show up and you would hear about things. And even yeah. I would play things like, um, a record and I would hear cover versions. And we talked about this in the past podcast, but about, and then you, then you would look up those people and you would find more people you like, but right, it's harder and harder. I think for these new kids, I mean, I, I find new kids are not, don't have the, the, the places to look. Yes. I think the answer and good bad or otherwise
1: I think they're on TikTok and I think that's where they learn about new music you know I don't think they're uh, you know or or they're just streaming you know they'll go on to YouTube and stream an entire album and not care that there's a big fat ad in the middle but yeah I think that is music discovery now if you're you know under 20 um, or
2: or under 30 I was just in Michigan and I went to a used record store and it's a college town. And I was asking the guy, what do the students, what are the students buying now? Cause I was curious because there was people coming in there, they're buying stuff and they're buying really weird, strange things that you wouldn't expect. One of the big sellers was the ink spots, ink spots were wow. uh Weird, weird folk music. Folk music was like a Kingston trio and things like that were where people were buying. And it's like, how are they finding this stuff? And he said, a lot of that, especially the ink spots were coming from video games, I guess. Wow. Fallout, I think was the one. And they seem desperate to find quality music and it's hard for people to find it. I mean, we all know there's quality out there of any kind of genre. We're all all music aficionados and we don't say, well, no, don't like country, don't like this because it's all bad. No, there's, there's good and anything out there it's just finding what the good stuff is and that's the battle. that's that's the battle it's not the stuff that you hear on the on the country radio that they play the 20 songs over and over again right it's the songs that maybe inspired those people to make those songs yeah and that's the stuff that it's hard to hard for new people to find that's remarkable about the video games um i also think uh,
1: what Jennifer said about uh, you know Sierra Wave and Mammoth Lakes—it's if there's a recommendation source that you trust, mm-hmm. then I think you're going to pay attention to it. And you know the social media platforms know, and our Amazon Echoes know what we like, right? Because they're following our path, you know, every, every step, right? I love non-commercial radio for exactly the reasons that Jennifer mentioned. Luckily, uh, my mate. Of 14 years, uh, Crystal Ann Lay is a non commercial Americana radio promoter. And the interesting angle on this, or just it's it's worth mentioning, is that I used to hire her at Universal all the time. She was the best for that genre. So if non commercial radio is, uh, you know, here in Los Angeles, you're talking KPFA, KCRW, uh, KPCC. uh, But the Americana stations, you know, like there's non commercial radio across the country. She specialized in that and Americana. And I found, you know, when you're at a corporation, they force you to work with all kinds of turkeys. You know, your boss's buddy, who was a promotion guy eight years ago, uh, (laughs) this guy they owe a favor to because they screwed him over last time. And you would just have to work with these people. Now, some of them were great and some of them were turkeys, you know, and I like delivering reports that read like term papers Because I got yelled at by a lot of managers. So I kind of knew what they wanted, you know, and you learn by process. But here's where I'm going with this. I hired her for the Bob Marley estate stuff. Uh, We did a George Harrison, uh, Martin Scorsese documentary called uh, Living in the Material World. Mm -hmm. And we had released some George Harrison demos. And she took those demos and got airplay with them at non-commercial. So that was cool because she knew where to go. Classic rock, maybe you'll get played on a Sunday show if the Sunday host is generous. Jim Ladd, yeah, Jim Ladd will probably play it, sure. And he was a pal. I mean, I took, you know, I started having relationships at Sirius XM uh, when they were just serious and was when XM radio was just XM radio. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was taking Tom Jones to XM radio in Washington, <laughs> D.C. I was that guy, I was always kind of the runner you know, I would take the Scorpions in to see, to to see Bob Coburn and Rockline. So I was that guy. I mean, at least I got to live in that era. Right. But back to Crystal Ann and Americana and non-coms. So it's really where you can get a footing, especially for these young artists, where you're not going to get in the door to Kiss FM or to K-Rock or to any other, you know, or KLOS. God bless them all. They, you know, they have their partners and they have to go after name brands for their sponsors, you know, yeah. but at non-com it's the wild west out there, mm-hmm. thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, but I had hired her for Peter Wolf, who was managed by Irving Azoff, very powerful company. We had to work Peter Wolf for a lot longer than any other artist <laughs> because of <laughs> political reasons. But uh, Crystal Ann knew where to go for all those stations. So she would deliver these great reports and I knew what the manager wanted, so I would add my own you know stations, radio interviews, whatever else I had on top of it. anyway, so that's what she specializes in, and lo and behold, we became a couple, and she didn't run screaming when I lost my big corporate job. so uh anyway, it's nice to have someone that believes in you in your personal life and that also understands and you can talk shop with so
0: and also Americana is really great.
1: <laughs> it is great and it's uh you know everybody it's you know triple a radio and americana you know if it doesn't fit anywhere else mm-hmm. you know they'll try to jam any kind of artist into these but you know all the hosts and the programmers out there those genres are opinionated too but that's okay that's part of the process and that's why they are recommendation engines if you will mm-hmm. you know so I sort of see it that way but yeah and so i learned a much Deeper respect for those formats, you know, as I, you know, sometimes you just can't get anywhere with, I would be thrown the craziest genres, Um, Andre Rieu, who's kind of a classical, I believe, German uh, he put on a big show with kind of, you know, these Christmas ornamentations. What does that fit in in American radio? <laughs>
0: right. Oh,
1: my God. And it was very classic. <laughs> and I'm not making an, a judgment here. This is not, a, I'm not profiling the guy. No, I'm,
0: right. I get it.
1: But it was you know, a little more closer to like Mannheim steamroller or something Uh of that nature. Right. And God bless Mannheim steamroller for finding an alley and just crushing Mm -hmm. it year after year. Right. Mm -hmm. So why not just think from that perspective, you know, so my job essentially is to really be a champion for these artists and find some homes for them. One of uh, my uh, favorite catchphrases is, uh, making friends with strangers, you know, with Kyle Vincent's album, you know, he had champions in the nineties and, you know, and people who, and he still has a great fan base, but I wanted people to hear him the way I hear it. And so that's my job is to be able to reintroduce. I got him a five-star review in Shindig, you know, which is a great magazine produced out of the UK, American Songwriter, which is another badge of pride that I'll wear forever. Uh, United Stations Radio Network. And then they got picked up by uh, Nights with Alice Cooper, which is a radio show that Alice Cooper does. But their website picked up a nice story on Kyle Vincent. So, you know, you're just constantly trying to find the right home for the right song for the right artist, if that's okay to say. When I left Universal... I kind of told myself I was going to blur the lines between promotion and publicity. Mm. And I've worked with really amazing publicity people. Okay. But I also looked at that lane as just like, well, it's a lot like radio in that you have to keep a huge database. Your database is never ending. You're always making new contacts. Somebody you might make a contact with that champions and early artist of yours might also like maybe not the next client, but the client after that. So hopefully you know, the people that are in those positions of receiving all these requests for interviews and reviews also realize that my stuff might stink right now, but down the pack, uh, you know, uh, you know a few months later, I actually might have something that might make you jump up and down. You know, the same the same reviewer that would be delighted with uh, Joel Sullivan's Hollywood Eden might not necessarily be a fan of Gilbert O'Sullivan. I'm working at Gilbert O'Sullivan tour in March of next year. So you just, You know, you're hopefully finding the right people that can champion your client.
0: Well, Elliot, I cannot believe that an hour has gone by already. (laughs) Oh my gosh, this is the fastest hour of my life. Uh, But thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about this. And obviously, between Bill and me, we could, yeah, we could keep you here for a couple hours. Uh, But before I let you go, is there anything that you would like to? Uh, refer the audience to or anything in particular you're working on, any websites, really anything that you would uh, like to take this moment to share with them.
1: This is your time. Uh, There's an Americana Association based out of Nashville. I would recommend that your listeners uh, check out the Americana Association out of Nashville and start there. And I believe they have a list of stations. So that uh, you can see what their network's all about. But I also think it's important for, uh, you know, especially in discovering new music and exactly the way Jennifer described it, your local uh, public radio, NPR, Pacifica, you know, Pacifica Radio, those kinds of stations. In Los Angeles, off the top of my head, you know, uh, KPFK, uh, KCRW, KPCC, places of that nature. I guess in closing, I'd like to say that no year has been the same for me. Following Universal, you know, at Universal, I literally had moments where I'm taking Ringo Starr to a world cafe. At the time, we did this technology called ISDN, and we did a Village Recorders thing here in Los Angeles, where we went to Village Recorders. Uh, the SUV shows up. I'm there half hour early because that's the kind of guy I am. It's pouring down rain, and I'm literally Ringo's umbrella guy so you know you know you've got the eye contact with the driver of the suv it's a black suv you're in front of village recorders it could be ringo or it could be fleetwood mac but you're pretty sure it's ringo i give the nod to the driver he gives me a nod okay great get out the umbrella i take ringo in the pouring rain in the front uh lobby there village recorders and we go upstairs and we do his interview and it was with david dye of world cafe
0: Oh, yeah, which was a place I found a lot of music, I have to quickly say. Uh
1: Yes, and World Cafe is going strong, and they have a great new host, and I highly recommend anyone checking out their local World Cafe affiliate or listening online. It's super easy. Their flagship station is another one of my favorite stations, without getting too favoritism here, but it's uh, WXPN Philadelphia. And they're major market, very influential, but they still have the wings to be able to do their own thing. But, you know, I came from the major label world where, you know, at the end of this Ringo interview, the owner of the studio comes upstairs and he says, "Uh, Ringo, Elton's downstairs in studio two. if you want to come down and if you'd love to (laughs) say hello. And it's myself and it's Ringo and it's Ringo's publicist who's been with him for years and still is. So we go downstairs And Ringo's there with his handler in like a million dollar, you know, I'm trying to say this correctly, but like a, a leisure suit that should be a warm-up suit, but it's couture, you know? So, so it it probably has gold zippers and I'm being kind of fun (laughs) about it, but you know, this is remarkable. I mean, here are these two guys in a room and there's three hangers on and, uh, immediately there's like maybe a joke about the Rat Pack. I think Ringo came into the room and you know, sang a Sinatra song and Elton was a little more downplay, you know, he's like, how are you now? If you're Elton John, you might be thinking a million things. Number one, he and Marengo are very, very good friends, right? Or at least, you know, close enough, right? And Elton's probably thinking about, you know, the loss of John Lennon, you know, that he and John Lennon were so close, you know, I mean, all these are going through my head. And yet I'm also thinking, stay on point. Don't be a fanboy, do your gig, whatever that is at this moment. And you know, get out of Dodge, and that's exactly what I did. So they start engaging, and Ringo says, "What are you here for?" And and uh, Elton says, "Well, I'm working on my new album with Leon Russell." And Ringo says, "Oh, well, I'm here promoting my new album on Universal." And he snaps his fingers. It's the first time I've ever seen him do that in any scenario. So the publicist runs out of the room, presumably to get the album. Of course, in my man purse, I've got several copies. So my big moment was literally taking Ringo's new album, handing it to Elton, Elton, not even looking at me, but grabbing, you know, but receiving the album and looking at it. And at that point, I knew my time should be limited. <laughs> so I faded out. The publicist came back in the room. I said, look, I'll see you guys later tonight at rock line. I think we had, you know, a couple other things lined up and I got out of Dodge and that's really the lesson you want to take with you when you're, you know, working around legends is just know when to leave, you know, and I wasn't going to be the guy to ask for a selfie, I wasn't going to be the guy to ask for an autograph. But when you're in that environment, and then you go from that kind of experience for 12 straight years, and then back to reinvention, you don't know what's coming next. You know, you're just, you're just kind of going to open up your lemonade stand every five minutes. So I'd probably go back to that. But in closing, as far as talking about Best place to find me is on LinkedIn because I think you can sort of see what I'm all about. Uh, yes, you'll probably see me commenting at a boy and liking posts, and you know it's interesting what they will show. But if you scroll through my feed, you'll see what I do for my clients. You'll see that I'm promoting a podcast that was talking to author Joel Selvin. I'm promoting the fact that Kyle Vincent was celebrated by American songwriter and gave him this astounding quote. I'm promoting the fact that Gilbert O'Sullivan now has new tour dates in uh, March 2022. Uh, since he had to cancel from the pandemic. Um, And then in review, um, you know, this year it's been Hollywood Eden by Joel Selvin. I worked uh, the Kinks Lola 50th anniversary box set for BMG. I worked an Iron Maiden side project called Smith-Cottson. And I brought a Fender partnership to the table, which is another thing I do is I like to work with instrument brands, Fender, Mm -hmm. Gibson, Roland. And especially if the artist is, you know, if there's a a connection there, then I love to try to exploit that. Kyle Vincent, of course, with Universal UMG. Uh, Gilbert O'Sullivan, as I mentioned, has a new tour next year. Uh, But year prior, it was a Keith Richards box set, Talk is Cheap, uh, uh, deluxe edition, super deluxe edition. Uh, I worked uh, Cindy Blackman Santana, the wife percussionist of uh, Carlos Santana. Along comes the association for Rare Bird Press. Um, you know, so it just, it's kind of, you never know what's next, but of course I have to stick my neck out there too. You know, I, I chase all the documentaries that are close and near and dear to my heart. So I'll pursue those passion projects, you know, and I also don't mind being the, ca- the heel catcher in the room. You know, if I'm like one of the late guys brought in, the wrecking crew is a perfect example. They had their PR team all set up. I knew the director, Denny Tedesco, son of the late, great Tommy Tedesco, phenomenal Session guitarist that created—he was on every Frank Sinatra, Beach Boys, Jan and Dean session you could name. Also the 50 guitars of uh, Tommy Garrett, who's was part of that whole crew. But Denny Tedesco, his son, directed the Wrecking Crew, and I befriended Denny, and he'd done a bunch of—he'd kind of uh, he'd gotten his distribution deal together. No, in fact, I remember he didn't, and I used to champion him when I was at Universal. And then afterwards, he was still cooking, still kept the faith. He, he he really is the reason that that film was so successful, because he just refused to give up. So befriended Denny. He liked what I had going on. He bought me breakfast, which was lovely, but he recommended me to Magnolia Pictures. And the Magnolia Pictures guy was just exasperated. Okay, Elliot, I've got no budget. What can you do for me? One of those. And I was so crestfallen. It was like, dude, you have no idea what I can do for you. Oh, I know. How about a Fender partnership on a custom Fender Telecaster and then a cover story in Record Collector News? (laughs) And then we'll give away Fender Telecasters through Amoeba, through Landmark Pictures, through the theater chains. How about that, dude? You know, but of course, I didn't have that together at the time, but it happened once I came on board. And this guy's now at Netflix. And look, he had his job to do. And I get it. But you've got to be able to face adversity like that and then be able to pull out the goods, you know? So uh, that's really my MO, modus operandi, you know? Soul of an artist, driven like a honey badger on the promotion tip, unafraid or not fearful of the publicity world, enough to be able to blend all the genres and be able to book podcast interviews and try to get reviews and just try to be sort of a, multifaceted because our culture demands it. You know, the, the the information that we're expected to sort of absorb and retain now is just off the charts. You know, so we have to help people focus. Perhaps that's what Jennifer was talking about with the radio station is they, you know, they help engage you. And so then you're kind of along for the ride. And maybe that's our job as PR and promotion people is to just engage and to try not bore in the process, you know, and to try not annoy in the process.
0: I really think that's That is really an interesting thing for us to think about, all of us, helping other people focus. Because, yeah, that is the challenge today for us and for people around us. And maybe that is just a good watchword for the future is helping people focus. And, And maybe that's partly what we're trying to do with this podcast, too. So thank you, Elliot, so much for talking to us about this really tough industry you're in during a very very tough time so thank you so much for coming on the show
1: and thank you bill also thank you elliot thank you jennifer my pleasure i've I've had such a great time and uh you know apologies if i talked your ear off but i'm
0: (laughs) we loved it i I, am passionate
1: (laughs) (laughs) but but i do have a ton of stories you know and i just think they're helpful you know you uh you learn from them you know, you learn from slipping on the butter with the eggs Benedict, and you know, uh, you learn that uh, that Ringo and Elton John need a moment. You know.
0: <laughs> yeah, thank you so much.
1: Thanks, you guys. What a pleasure.
0: Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.